This is the second episode in a special series of The Producers. Agriculture 2023 celebrates the farmers and produce of Northern Tasmania. In five conversations, we celebrate farmers caring for both land and community, a cattle farmer, cheesemaker, veggie growers, and a winemaker. Along the way, you'll hear how strong local food systems and ethical farming do much more than create delicious food. They also benefit the farmers themselves, people who enjoy food at home and in restaurants, and the earth that we all share. You can't get cows to force them to do what they don't want to do. And uh, I'll know if anyone's treating any of our cattle badly by the way they react around people. Your your cows will... um, tell you what you need to know if you take the time to listen. Yeah. This is The Producers. I'm Danny Vallant. Grass, cow, you. That's the approach at Ashgrove, where family-owned paddock-to-plate dairy delights are nurtured with full transparency and a sense of responsibility to land, animal and local Tasmanians. My name's Paul Bennett. Um, I'm chairman of Ashgrove Cheese and manager of Ashgrove Farms. We're a family dairy farming company in um, northern Tasmania. We uh, run a lot of dairy cows. Um, We uh, milk them and uh, value add our milk into cheese, butter and all dairy products. We've also um, got a um, dairy door cafe um, tourism facility that we um, built in the middle of COVID lockdown and uh, we're quite proud of that. It was really an extension of... um, a factory outlet shop we had, but um, everyone was coming into it. was very popular on the highway, but um, most people these days are on the food trail except something, expect something a little better than a factory outlet these days, yeah. My grandfather um, came here in 1908, I think, and uh, then uh, he had three sons, and uh, they left school very early, sort of 15, 16, worked hard, bought neighbouring properties, um, uh, my uncle Gerald left the family business with his own farms and my father John and my uncle Michael continued on with their wives into what is the Ashgrove Farms Partnership. Um, we worked hard, we just um, gradually um, bought neighbouring properties as they arose and the opportunity arose and then in 1993 um, we started actually making cheese but be five years before that the decision was made to go into value adding and so we um, went and bought uh, um, everything second hand. My father was a frustrated builder, I think, um, in, a, in another life. Um, we went and bought the old Ross Arden tin mine and recycled the sheds into that, what was become our factory and our main dairy farm here that we actually built ourselves, dug the holes on, welded the um, steel trusses up. Um, I personally screwed the roof on the factory without any um, safety harnesses or anything in those days because I was the most expendable member of the family, but we literally dug the holes, mixed the concrete by hand and put the factory together um, by that way. Um, We had no cheese expertise. Um, uh, My cousin Jane, um, Uncle Michael's daughter, um, we sent to Europe. Um, to England to learn how to make cheese um, and she came back and brought those skills into the family business yeah yeah well I came back first of all and joined my father my uncle my, uh, and their wives my mother and my aunt um, in the Ashgrove Farm Partnership in the um, late 80s um, my, both my father and my uncle had travelled extensively overseas and uh, had decided there was no money in bulk commodity 
exports and at that stage Tasmanian dairy farmers we were the lowest paid dairy farmers in the world and uh, that's a actual statistic that's uh, still bears fruit sometimes in this day and age and uh, um, we thought if we're going to go broke we might as well have a uh, good go at it and go broke on our own terms so we um, they had seen the the food movement in Europe um, and the value that um, sort of farmhouse cheeses had over there and thought well we could do that here in Tasmania. We um, worked exceptionally hard. We weren't uh, gifted this farm. My um, father, my uncle um, and my grandfather um, bought all the land around us. Um, we worked exceptionally hard. I guess we saw workers play um, and we didn't have much money at all. So um, it's been a long journey to get where we have and there's been a lot of people contributed along the way. My cousins, uh, my sisters, we all learnt to um, uh, do all those jobs. Um, I think we were seen as free labour um, from a young age, whether it be driving tractors, um, working cattle, working in shearing sheds, shifting irrigation pipes and crops. Um, yeah, we could do it all. Uh, I don't think the child labour laws would uh, accept it these days. Yeah. I love the, um, the farm and the cattle and I was good at it, so that's always an attraction. Um, but also times have changed. When I left school in the late 80s, mid 80s, um, youth unemployment in Tasmania was 60%. And so you didn't have a job, you didn't have career opportunities. People really didn't travel as much as they did or leave the country as people would now if, if it was such a, a, a poor case. So to have a, a family business to come back to um, uh, was great, um, albeit as tough as it was, um, we didn't know any better. Yeah, so we enjoyed it, made the most of it, yeah. There's no doubting the hard work and commitment of the Bennett family, but there's something special about the northern Tassie land they're farming, an advantage they didn't necessarily appreciate when farming was more about inputs and outputs than a relationship with the land. Uh, what's special about this area in northern Tasmania um, and really the whole of Tasmania is that we're, it's our position in the world. It's a position on the one earth we've got and it enables us um, to be able to grow ryegrass and white clover. And when you can bind that with the great soils that Tasmania has, it gives us an unparalleled advantage in a lot of other areas of the world in the nutrient density of our grass and therefore the nutrient density and the value of our food that comes out of our cows. It's pretty simple, it's, it's to do our biggest advantage is our climate, our soils and our location in the world. And if you'd have asked me that 30 years ago, I wouldn't have said that because I think it's a recognition as we've grown and as we've become more educated and um, more open to new ideas, we realise that how important the soils and the climate have become. I think what has really become um, more apparent and scientifically so is the life that's in our soil. So. We actually don't really use um, insecticides or herbicides. We're using the same fertilisers that my grandfather used. We've gone back to those, which are single superphosphate and lime, and we're now using a lot of compost. We've got an access to a lot of compost that's coming out of um, the Dalverton Composting Works, which is, collects all the green waste across northern Tasmania. And I think what we have learnt is there's not just one thing in the soil, and probably... In the 70s and 80s, we were into a very industrial type of agriculture, and even 90s and that further on, where we, we focused on nitrogen, we focused on phosphorus, we focused on 
potassium and then a few years later we learnt there was a bit of sulphur needed but there were very um, major nutrients and they're very easy to track through the the farming system but what we didn't take note of were the vitamins the minerals and all the organic matter and what that does to the health of the soils and the animals so uh, yeah making a product is one thing getting it into people's shopping baskets is a whole other journey Paul talks about his farming family becoming a canny marketing machine as well. Um, it's been a long journey because it's pretty easy to mark, make, um, but then you realise that uh, you've got to sell it. And uh, it's, I think a lot of people passionately get into um, value-adding into products, but that's only half the battle. Um, uh, there's a real battle in making sure that product is consistent and of high quality every batch you make, and then you have to evolve with the markets. Not only do you do you make a, a product, you then have to sell it. And I think when we first opened our factory shop with great excitement here on the side of the highway, we had one customer for the whole day. So then you had to go down a whole um, um, new skills for a, a farming family, how you learnt to market, how you learnt to um, um, sell your product, how the, um, we had some hard lessons along the way. It's not only do you have to sell the product, you have to get the money back because um, a lot of restaurants and um, a lot of people out there aren't as honest as probably we were as had used to in the in the farming community. So um, debt collection became a big part of the business and had some hard lessons learnt there with distributors and that. And then, um, yeah, and evolved to the businesses where it is today. We're, we employ 100, 120 people. Um, we've got a lot of different product lines and then that involves new skills because you then have to learn how to let go of the business and trust other people that aren't family members to manage and help you grow your business into the future. Yeah, yeah. when we first started out, we are very much um, a, a very small cheese production business. Um, we had the vision, and that was probably my father's vision, to not build a farmer's market scale cheese factory. We, his vision was to build one that made three to 500 tonnes a year. Um, when we did that, we went to the banks to get a loan to build a factory. They wouldn't believe us and made us do a very expensive study, which we've still got in the Australian cheese market. And they came back telling us that the whole Australian specialty cheese market was six tonnes. And what were you doing building a factory to make 300 tonnes? Um, but we stuck to our guns because we had a firm belief that if you're only doing a 20 or 30 tonne um, business, you'll make a living, but you won't make a business. And we see a lot of people do that, start with grace, enthusiasm, make a great product. But after going to the farmer's market every week of your life for five years, they tend to give up. And uh, so we had to grow beyond that so that we could sell our, our produce to the supermarkets to the independent grocers and all those because if we didn't do that um, and we couldn't get to the scale where we could do that um, we wouldn't have a business that was sustainable in the long term to the untrained eye it looks like cows in paddocks but to paul bennett the subtleties of moving cattle from one area to another are a key part of farm management it's better for the pasture it's also better for the cows and therefore, the cheese. Managed grazing, that was my pet topic. Um, love it. Um, we're lucky enough to do um, an intensive pasture management course in the 80s. And what I learned back then was the first course I ever did. My father sent me off. In the Kimberley Hall, we learned um, with the Department of Primary Industries here, taught us how to do intensive pasture management. And that was basically grazing the grass 
in its lifestyle, understanding the grass plant's lifestyle, how it grew and how if we grazed it at certain times, we maximised our growth and therefore the health of our animals and the productivity of the farms. And that's been really amazing to see how well that has stood up to all the modern concepts that people and have watched it go around different industries called, you know, block grazing, circular grazing, spell grazing, even regenerative agriculture has a huge amount in common with what we first learnt back then. It means that we really monitor our soils and our grass and depending on how the grass is growing, we then adapt our cattle's grazing management. So we, we graze the grass at its optimum time and then we give it time to recover. And that recovery time is the most important part. And uh, so that what it means is a lot of our pastures are you know, 40, 50 years old. They're thick, they're lush and they're sustainable. Um, and they'll be another 40 years old before we have to plough them up or, or do anything or maybe never, I never will have to plough some paddocks if we get it right. Um, and it's that sustainability which gives us a profitability. At times over the um, journey, we've been, you know, we'll get salesmen in saying we can get to this grass that'll grow 20% more grass, but only last two years. And then I've got to plough the paddock up or I've got to, it needs extra chemicals and inputs to, to sustain it. It's, it's a grass that needs steroids to grow. But we've got grasses that are just as productivity, which is just as productive, but they're more. Um, you know they're more forgiving and you know they've worked with us those grasses for as long as I've been here or longer so why would you get rid of them? Everything at Ashgrove relies on cattle and the more willing and happy they are the better everything rolls. Paul talks about his cattle how they're treated and what that means for his business. Oh cattle are really smart um, and they're smarter than a lot of people give them credit for. Um, they recognise people um, and they recognise if you're there to help them. Um, and um, I was taught by my grandfather how to handle stock and um, yeah, I, I love it just working with them. Um, you can't get cows to force them to do what they don't want to do. Well, you can, but it'd be a terrible day but if you work with them like we want cows that are 600 550 600 kilos to walk onto our dairy voluntarily be milked and then walk off and if we treat them well they'll do that twice a day or, or, or once a day or whatever we've got them on for us and uh but i'll know if anyone's treating any of our cattle badly by the way they react around people and there's a lot of scientific studies saying now cows and sheep can actually recognise faces. And I do know that because we know we employ a lot of staff and if we've ever had staff that have been bad-tempered or whatever, um, your cattle will let you know because they're scared to walk past them. And, and so your, your cows will um, tell you what you need to know if you take the time to listen, yeah. There are so many moving parts at Ashgrove and the seasons and weather all play a part in what's front of mind. What's keeping Paul busy at the moment? At the moment, um, we're calming. And we've just had two of the biggest storms you'd have seen the last two nights. When you hear sun shining today, it's a bit hard to believe. Um, so the last few days have been, um, I've been doing night shift. I do the calving of the cows. I really like that. That's where my skills lie, lie being a midwife, midwife to cows, I guess you'd say. Um, and so I track the um I checked them two or three times during the night um, and I finish about probably 12, 12 o'clock and then um, we have um, another 
couple of guys come in and they get them out of the paddock early in the morning for milking um, and they'll check them at five so then I'm starting not as early as I used to I'm getting a bit older now I used to always start before five but now I'm up starting about six six thirty seven so yeah depending on what the weather and the job is um, now it's a lot about managing staff teaching staff how to um, run a dairy farm and then um, I'm also around the factory here a lot um, Helping my cousin Richard if he needs anything, um, who runs the factory here. Um, so we often meet he and I and just have a chat about what we need to do for the day or what crisis has gone wrong or what, what we need to do. So, yeah, it's um, you've got to be nimble, I think, because it can be as simple as having a, a, a pump go out that surprised water to a farm or the electricity went out last night on two farms um, to get the backup generators going for milking this morning to... Um, you know, um, 12 months ago, we had major floods across farms that we had um, one property isolated with a manager on it. Um, we had another one that we had to get a vet into cattle and we ended up having to fly them in in a chopper. We'd never done that before. We'd never seen floods so big. Um, so you've got to be flexible. So, yeah. Oh, great day on the farm is probably dealing with cows and not so many people. Yeah. <laughs> More cows, less people, I say. So, yeah. Yeah. And my dog. Got a good dog. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I and I do I say that flippantly but that's often what I enjoy the farm the most is you know late at night or early in the morning when I'm checking an irrigator and you know um, there's just those one or two key people that are on the farm that, that really know how to run it and contribute to running it I think that's really um, you know daylight savings I've got a motorbike I'll take my dog I go around the irrigators around the cattle at you know six or eight o'clock after tea and yeah I just that's the best time yeah no one does dairy farming because they think it's an easy ride. But how does Paul balance the challenges and the satisfactions of life at Ashgrove? Dairy farming's always been tough. It's been tough my whole life. Um, I think it's the hardest farming occupation. It's probably the most rewarding one. Um, what's tough now is I think we're, we're a dying breed across the nation and statistics say that. Um, and. So that's tough. What's exciting is we're trying to get a new generation excited about dairy. They're probably not going to put the hours in that my generation did. That's fine. We just have to adapt dairy to suit the younger generation rather than... because they're not going to adapt to us. Across the farms, we've got about 20 staff running about 5,500 cows across five dairy farms and beef runoff blocks. What we've really been quite exciting is we've got a lot of young women that have come back onto the farm, a lot of young women that are, that are in management positions. Um, it, it's probably new for the industry, it's probably not so new for us as a family because my aunts, my mother, my sisters, my cousins are surrounded by strong women and they all contributed along the way but what is really quite exciting now is we're seeing a lot of young women that are really seeing it as a um, career choice, a preference that they really want to work on the environment and that. A lot of them are really great cattle managers, um, calf managers, young stock managers, because they have a natural empathy, I think, that sometimes blokes don't have. Um, so what that means is we've tried to um, take the heavy lifting out. Women can do everything blokes can do, except they probably can't lift a 80 kilo calf that's wrestling around in their arms. So we, we try and have trailers that don't have lifting. We don't have um, 
all our milk's now pumped to our calf pens and all that. A lot of our grain delivery's done under automatic with augers, so we've taken that grunt lifting out. But to be honest, it's not just the women. The young blokes aren't going to do it either. So um, I, I, I think for guys who grew up, that, you know, I'm in my mid-50s, that grew up in our age group, it was all manual work across all trades and all industries. And now as we, you know, we sit here and I've got more tech in my mobile phone than we had in computers at school. So we're driving tractors with GPS units. We're driving, you know, tractors with self-leveling front-end loaders that, you know, you can pick stuff up with and, and do stuff. So all that can be mechanised, can't even say the word, um, that takes the lifting and the grunt out. It, it, it takes a lot of investment. Um, in the properties to keep them up to scratch. Um, you know, um, we get our, our cattle in um, with buggies, little buggies instead of motorbikes. That gives people a roof and a windscreen if they're getting up at 3.30 in the morning to get a mob of cows in. Other changes we've made, one of the biggest ones is um, we milk the cows every 16 hours instead of twice a day, which is a really um, a, a great concept. I don't know who invented it, but they need the Nobel Peace Prize, I think. Um, and that means is we milk the cows Every 16 hours, it says, instead of twice a day. If we milk the cows twice a day, we're getting them in at five in the morning, milking, finish milking at eight o'clock, and then getting back in two in the afternoon. That meant that the cows were leaving the dairy at eight and coming back at two. That's not a lot of rest. So, and then they had a massive rest from the afternoon milking through to the morning, and then which was about 16 hours. And someone said, hey, how about we milk them every 16 hours? So the cows get 25% more rest and they're producing the same amount of milk. And also your staff aren't getting up at the crack of dawn every every day. So that's that's been um, a, a real big lift in the sustainability, both your staff and your animals and your farm. So, and just that's just a mindset change, something we've learned um, as we've gone along. Ashgrove manages the whole life cycle of cattle. And unlike most dairy farms, Paul Bennett grows out the bobby, or boy calves, and fattens up some cattle for beef. It's extra work, but it's all about reducing waste and being accountable to a society that demands thoughtful farming practices. So we're quite proud at Ashgrave on our animal welfare thing, so we do a lot of stuff to set ourselves apart with that. One of them is we rear all our calves. Um, so we use a lot of sex semen, so we, we breed our own replacement heifers and they go away and it'll be two years before they calve and become a dairy cow. Um, and the contemporaries are male calves. We're using Angus beef and there's also some Frisian bulls um, that we're rearing right out and we're turning into, into, into beef. So the Angus cross ones will make a beautifully, um, and I would argue a better quality beef than the straight bred Angus or Herefords or whatever. And then the uh, Frisians, the same, are a great beef product. So we grow those right out um, and they're killed and they'll, the Frisians particularly, will go to the grinding beef market. They'll be for your mince, your hamburgers, your tacos, your spaghetti bolognese um, and the the um, Angus cross beef or short on cross beef dairy that we use um, will be you know grown out um, fattened and uh, grass fattened and then uh, you know as good as any other straight animal so we sell like the abattoirs and then you know they're sold to restaurants or wherever so yeah so we um, really like that um, we're sort of value adding the whole animal we're not disposing of a calf at a few days of age it creates a lot of work enormous amount of extra work um, but I think it's, it's something that um, 
I think society expects these days you can't just have a waste animal. You've got to utilise the whole thing. And if we're going to milk cows and if, if, if um, we're going to produce milk as dairy farmers, we have to face up to the problem or the opportunity that bobby calves are. So um, we've um, hit that head on and for the last 10 years we haven't produced a bobby calf on this farm. So the last few years when um, beef prices were high, it was absolutely fantastic. Just at the moment, it's not so good. But um, the market, beef market's collapsed right around the country um, and everyone's struggling to sell that. Um, and when the beef market collapses, you can't sell um, dairy cross cattle. They take it even harder. Um, so what we've done is we've um, actually um, taken a couple of pens at the feedlot and we're um, fattening our own Frisian steers right through to ensure that they're a good product and a saleable product at the end. So currently we've got um, uh, 51 and 198 steers in two pens down at the abattoir. So we just sent the first 50 in um, to JBS and they were slaughtered the other day and uh, the, yeah, the quality of the beef is really good. So yeah, so we're putting our money where our mouth is hopefully so to prove the concept. Cows make milk. People make cheese. But what sort of cheese is crafted at Ashgrove? Yeah, so um, we started making cheese, hard cheeses. We made um, English-style cheeses. Um, that was our vision to start with. We wanted to make a cheese that people ate every day. Um, so we do cheddar, English Leicester, um, creamy Lancashire and variations on those. Um, we've also developed into feta, halimi and um, a few others as um, the markets dictated and we listened to what people wanted to eat every day. Um, so we have a full range of those. We have really high value gloss matured cheddar cheeses that sell for $90, $100 a kilo that are sold at the top end cheesemongers across the country. And we have down to our supermarket grade stuff, um, which is, is not a lot different. The difference is the age in which it's matured. And the um, cloth matured, the really mature cheeses take up to 18 months, two years to mature, whereas a, a supermarket cheese might only be three months old. So that's what you're really paying for is that care and that time taken for the next year, two years to let the, the cheese mature and its flavour develop. Um, and then we're also doing, um, we got into liquid milk bottling, um, some time ago, um, we bought a second-hand milk bottling plant at um, a little place called Bentley near between Lismore and Kyogle, um, up on the New South Wales-Queensland border. Um, my cousin Richard and I went up and we bought that. We um, bought it down and in the off-season, which is now we put up the milk bottling plant in the, um, in the back of the factory and... Uh, Everyone said there's no money in bottling milk. Everyone always says that. And it was right when the milk war started. And um, we've had a very good um, reaction from the public and we've grown the brand now and we've had to build a bigger factory and automate it all. Um, we're bottling 30% of Tasmanian's branded milk. We're the biggest branded milk bottler in, in, the, in the state. Um, that's not a lot to brag about because we're a very small state and uh, so it just means we're a, you know, a reasonable side goldfish in that pond um, and put it in perspective there's less people in Tasmania than there are in the city of Geelong um, so what you find right across the nation in every region there is, is a, a really paddock to plague small um, milk bottler started up and we sort of talked a lot of those as Gippy Milk or Great Ocean Road or Mullaney Milk in Queensland or whatever um, and so that's uh, 
uh, been really good that people have recognised that milk quality and uh, have been really prepared to support their local milk producer, yeah. So we do cream, which we just won best cream in the nation for, um, and uh, butter and uh, dried cheese product too, yeah. It's one thing to get your product onto supermarket shelves. It's another thing to get it into restaurants. Paul explains the helpful synergies between hospitality and retail and the way that broader perceptions of food have changed and impacted the community's views on farming. Chefs and restaurant are, are always um, a big part of your marketing. If you can get chefs who at the end of the day um, are seen as the food um, authorities in this country to say your product's good um, and people eat it at a restaurant when they're out and then they may see it when they're at the local IGA or the supermarket or driving past and think oh, I'll have a bit more of that um, and that's what we've always just wanted we put our product out there and you know, invited people to try it and hopefully they'll like it and might buy it again um, the really interesting thing on the whole food journey has been the change for me in the perception. When I came back and joined the farm, we had actively career counsellors at school telling you there was no future in agriculture. When we built a cheese factory and my cousin Jane and I came back to work in that and were working on the farm building it, um, it was seen as the most daggy thing a person could do. Like, we just, people made fun of us for it. And it wasn't until MasterChef and that phenomenon came along that the whole Australian perception of food changed and it became cool. And I think that's why there's so many young people and young women looking at agriculture now because they really care about where it comes from and can see that when you're producing a product like we are or any other small producer is um, doing it, you know, you're actually contributing something to society, yeah. We've always looked at the markets looked at what we had in the resources with the farms and just you know asked people what they wanted um, and tried to deliver it um, as the business has grown the pressures come on um, a lot more um, we're a big part of our local community we're a big employer in a very small area um, so when the market goes up or down or you don't pay your bills um, it really hurts us and I have to go into the factory or the farm and you know put off staff that maybe their kids are going to school with your kids or whatever. So as the business grows, the pressure's grown um, to you're not just providing um, an income and a living for your family. We're doing it for 120 families in, an, in, a, in a regional area which doesn't have a lot of employment. Uh, yeah, so we're pretty proud of our record there. One day, he's a midwife to a cow in a paddock. Another day, he's grappling with the latest demands of a supermarket. With such a varied work life, what does Paul Bennett love about what he does? Being outside, I'm an outside person. Um, you know, I was taught to fish and hunt by my grandfather. Um, when we had no money, it was a big part of what we ate, was what we caught, um, not celebrity sort of hunting to say it because it's pretty um, uncool but um, yeah they went through the depression they'd done it tough and you know I was taught to fish and hunt as a kid and whatever we caught we ate and sometimes you didn't get much um, 
So I still love that environment and, you know, I guess the ability to read nature, read your stock and do that. Like, you know, sure, it's nice to have a nice new tractor with a GPS in it, but that um, excites the young kids. But um, to me, it's still the animals, if you see those doing well. And when you get your farm through a storm like we had the last two nights, you know, we lost trees, we lost fences, but, you know, we didn't lose any cattle. Um, and all the cattle are, you know, sun shining today and they're all back happy again. So, you know, it's the getting through crisis is what I love. Like we've had fires, we've had floods and that. And I guess that's where my skills are, managing through a crisis. So. And that's the stuff people don't see, you know. And it's the community that gets everyone through those things. We've had, we've had politicians, we've had every prime minister that's ever been through here when it's election time, because we're a big employer with lots of things. But they're not the people to be there on Friday night when a pump goes down or a truck breaks down, and we've got to deliver, um, you know, milk in to to somewhere, or got to put cheese on a plane to get it to a market. Those um, celebrities or politicians won't be the ones that'll be helping you getting it done it'll be the um, local electrician or the truck driver or whatever that'll be you know giving up his Friday night to help you. The Bennett family have been farming here since 1908 starting with a few sheep some veggie plots and a herd of dairy cows. Through vision, determination, innovation and strong values, the family has become a key regional business for Northern Tasmania, showcasing the very best in animal welfare, land management and community engagement. Paul Bennett is farming for the future. This is The Producers, a Deep in the Weeds production. I'm Danny Vallant. Stay tuned as we talk to some of Australia's best farmers, makers and growers. Follow us on Instagram at Producers Podcast or contact us via deepintheweeds.com.au.